Okay, welcome back to Pacific Legends Unleashed. 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 Part three, episode three of William Bly. I mean, not, no one thought we'd get this far, did they? No, not at all. Our re- research has shown that most podcasts fail in the first 15 minutes, and here we are, episode three. Yep, several hours in. And we've almost got through our first uh, character, our first legend. Yeah, and most of what we've said has been correct. Mm. Relatively I'm, historical. We're getting a lot of good feedback. Actually, interesting feedback. A lot of people have said that we need more sound effects. Yeah. So I'll be trying to squeeze in a lot this episode, well, even if that, it doesn't actually um, kind of fit in. Yeah, I'll no be, relevance. I'll be getting it in there. On that note, though, did you artificially post-production add a lisp uh, to yeah. us in episode Yeah, two? I did. There's no way we lisp naturally. It's... Um, that's all for, um, you know, to try and get that nice wispy sound. Yeah. Do you think you achieved that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Because right at the end there, when the music is swelling, that the iconic Pacific Legends Unleashed track, which I'm hoping is in the public domain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're good for that one? Yep. Okay. Anyway, as that music is building and I'm trying to generate a bit of hype for episode three, I talk about backstabbing <laughs> and it loses a little bit of its oomph, I think. Yeah, so was... maybe, yeah, just stick with the pig sound effect. Yeah, if you could be a bit more professional this episode, <laughs> that would be good. Uh, interesting. Um, one of my students said the other day that he's got a model of the bounty and his home. What are the chances? So shout out to Ari. Oh, hey, Ari. Yeah, well done, Ari. He's, he'll be listening to this. Yeah, good stuff. Um, speaking of historical accuracy, it's probably worth acknowledging the elephant in the room. We're all thinking of it. Yeah, yeah, I feel awkward. So, <laughs> you look awkward. Um... Last episode, I went to some lengths to discuss the backstory of John Adams, saying that he'd registered on the bounty under the name of Alex Stewart. Yes. And I, no, like, no one brought this up, which I think is worse, the fact that I had to realise the mistake all on my own. When I go back through my notes, the name Alex Smith is written from top to bottom. And then somehow, when I went to prepare for that episode, I just decided to write Stewart in there, and I just went with it. And when I first said it on that episode, I went... Something's wrong with that, but I just looked at the page in front of me and went, "No, no." As a resident expert, yeah, I'd expect you to be better than that. Well, here's me going, "Yeah, I grew up on Norfolk Island. I've many friends with the big, last name Big Chat, Adams, Christian, Quintal, McCoy," and then I'm prattling on about Alex Stewart for an hour. So, blame Neil Stewart. Well, yeah, and it's not like we've ever pretended to be competent. Well. I haven't, but you you came in with some massive talk. I think if there's one thing we've done really well on this podcast, it's to prove that we're idiots. Speak for yourself, yeah, please. Yeah, sorry, I don't want to drag you down into that. That's not fair. <clears throat> okay, should we move on? Yeah, how about me? I just want to know, have, you've had an interesting encounter mm-hmm. with someone that ties into the story. Go on. Please tell. My table. Yes. I sold a table. So I had a dining table available, sorry to anyone out there that's looking for one and is after a reclaimed teak and iron dining table, but it's gone. And the person that purchased it was chatting to my wife. She mentioned I grew up on Norfolk Island and he said, well, I've got a connection to the place. Um, And he was related to Captain Bly. What are the chances? I know, quite small. And he stated that him and his family had a few relics, heirlooms, um, artifacts from Bly's trip. He mentioned the musket ball. Um, which they took on the the launch with them and he used to weigh out equal portions of bread and there was a painting and all of these were sold to the... um, Cutlass? Yeah, part of a cutlass and all of this was sold, I think, to the British Maritime Museum, if that's even an organisation. I don't know, my memory's fuzzy, it was a week ago. But a big shout out to John for buying the table and proving how small the world can be. 
Yeah, isn't that amazing? So this episode, we're going to be looking at uh, life after the mutiny. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be focusing in on um, what happened to William Bly, what he got up to, and you're going to be focusing in on Pitcairn. The absolute carnage on Pitcairn. Should we get into it? Yep, off you go. You're up. So I guess 11 months after the mutiny, against the odds, William Bly makes it all the way back to England, which is amazing for a start. And once word, once word got out, like everyone can't believe it. Like, how did you, you know, how did you survive in that little boat? How did you get all the way to Copang? And no one, no one died apart from that guy that got stoned on the beach. But, Sorry, Norton. Yeah, yeah, how could you make it? You're so short, William Bly. You're such a tiny little man. Yeah. So just like every celebrity does when they do something like this, Bly tries to cash in by writing a bit <laughs> of a book. Obviously, it's um, from his perspective. So. He's he's done nothing wrong and he's an absolute legend, which, you know, I'm sure is partly true. Yep. Probably leaves out the parts about the bit where he flogged everyone and was over the top strict. Yep. But you know, that's what happens when you're your own author. But the other thing that had to happen was a court martial because the British Navy, they want to know what's happened to our boat. You know, whose fault is this? Um they've got to figure it out because that's a lot of money that's gone missing. The mission's failed. So they call everyone in essentially to kind of like pass judgment on William Bly. So all the all the uh, loyalists that had made it back by this stage, they've all come back to to London. They get called in for the court-martial and they all kind of back Bly up and say it's really through no fault of Bly that he, he lost the ship. It was the dastardly Fletcher Christian. Um, and, of course, Bly is um, acquitted and only one person kind of gets in trouble there, and that's Purcell. He's the carpenter, mm-hmm. and he was kind of a bit of a rascal. So he got in he got in trouble for a little bit of just not following orders, et cetera, et cetera, and he got a bit of a official reprimand, but no biggie. So Bly's been cleared. Yep. He's a bit of a hero. Yeah, what a legend. I know. Amazing. And um, obviously the Navy's a bit, you know, cheesed off. So... They decide, right, we need to go sort these mutineers out on the mm. other side of the world because they've stolen our ship, yep. they've ruined the mission, they've almost killed half of the crew. So they, they find the their nastiest captain, his name is Edward Edwards. Yep. No wonder he's angry. Yeah. Someone named him that. <laughs> the parents absolutely did said stitched him up. Someone's going to cop it. So they give him a 24-gun frigate called the Pandora and they say to him, you go over there, back to Tahiti, you get those... You get those scoundrels that, that caused this mutiny. Those hounds. Bring them back and we're going we're gonna to sort them out. We're going to finally get justice. And he grabs old Thomas Hayward, who was, um, who was on the bounty and who came back, who was one of the loyalists. He grabs him and mm-hmm. says, come with me. You'll be useful in identifying some of these Muppets. And away they go. Um, so off they go and, and they arrive in Tahiti in uh, 1791. What's interesting is that when they arrive, the natives obviously see see the boat coming. They come back to shore. And meanwhile, some of the mutineers are still on Tahiti, right? Because mm. if you remember, um, a bunch of them went to, went to Pitcairn, but a bunch of them got stayed in Tahiti because they'd had enough of trying to find a hideout. Yeah. And when the, when the uh, natives are out in the canoes, they see the boat, um, they realise... They're, it's, they're coming back for the mutineers. They come back and they tell some of those guys, and those guys are like, it's their worst nightmare because what it means is that 
Bly's made it back to England. Yeah. All their nightmares have come true. So they, a bunch of them run off. Some of them run to the hills. Some of them grab a boat and try and take off. But interestingly, there's three of them that kind of swim out to the boat. Mm. And those are the kind of three of the ones that essentially think think they're innocent. They wanted to be on the little Yeah, launch. they just couldn't fit on the launch. They were told they had to stay. Yep. Yeah. So that is um, Peter Hayward, Joseph Coleman, and George Stewart. Interesting thing about Peter Hayward, he was like 17 years old at the time of the... Yeah, he was a wee And he was one of the officers, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so he was a junior officer. So he was like high up. And um, essentially, they're swimming out to say, look, we didn't want to be part of this mutiny. We couldn't get on the boat because there wasn't enough room. Mm. You know, we're soaked your hair to pick us up so we can start our lives back in England. And what then does- coming out was sort of that other... Yeah element yeah. of proof you know they were they were willing to risk coming out they were so adamant that they would be cleared have a guess what old edward edwards does puts them in a box whacks them in some chains yeah and says you are piratical villains you bloody pirates get down there yeah so he's not having a bar of it he's a he's an angry man and then they then they go on a, on a big mission to pick up the rest of the crew so he sends he sends all his boys out and they run around they run around tahiti looking for these guys and they they bring them in. Burkett, Sumner, Musprit, Hilbrant, McIntosh, Millwood. All of these guys, um, they get rounded up pretty easily because the local leaders are also helping out, right? Mm. The Tahitians aren't really their mates. They've, they've kind of had enough of them. Yeah. So they get yeah. help them get caught and brought back where they're they're placed into this kind of like prison on on the boat Pandora. And it's interesting because, you know, it's it's really hot in there. There's no room. There's no toilet. They're above deck, right? They're they're on on the deck. Yeah, yeah. But there's nowhere. There's no nowhere to lie down. Yeah. There's no, they're not allowed outside. There's nowhere to walk around. They're yeah, basically, I think there was a hatch in the top of it, and they were sort of dropped down yeah. in there. And to, they're going to the toilet in the corner. Yeah. You know, horrible conditions. Exposed to the elements. And uh, one of the one of the guys in there ends up naming it Pandora's box, which I think is pretty hilarious from mm. them. A great bit of humour, considering you're probably in the lowest point of your life. Bit of gallows humour. These guys know they're going back to um, England, probably to be hung. Yeah, and the ones who think that they're innocent too. Or also and thrown in there. Because remember, Bly, when he was leaving, didn't he say something like, I think he had a quote from the last episode, he's like, don't worry, I'm paraphrasing, don't worry guys, I'll avenge you, you know, justice will be done or something. Yeah. And so now this is the justice. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe who else is in, the, in Pandora's box. Michael Byrne, the blind fiddler. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's absolutely he, copped it. Did they pick him up on the way through? Yeah. He was in the jolly boat. And they yeah, went, oh. found the jolly boat floating around. He's been paddling around in circles for about six months. They just heard a fiddle being played on the horizon. and Surely his defence is going to be, I couldn't see what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Come on, man. I'm Sorry. Gonna... Remember, I can't see anything. So um, it's good to see he's back in the story. But obviously there's only like 10, 10 mutineers and they're looking for, how many are they looking for? Like 20? Yeah, more. More so well, there's nine on pit camp. So basically, Edward Edwards is like, right, we need to find the rest. So he he kind of hops around all the other islands looking for these geezers. And it's like the biggest game of hide and seek ever. But luckily, Pitcairn is in the middle of dead set nowhere. Yeah. It's in the boondocks, isn't it? So like, no no one really knew about it. Well, it's against the trade winds from Tahiti. So yeah. they've gone the opposite direction than most people thought they would. And yeah. it's in the wrong spot on Edward Edwards' map. Yeah, so he didn't even bother going to Pitcairn, but he checked out all the other islands, couldn't find any more. He's got his 10, so he's like, okay, let's take these back. This is Everyone else must be dead. Mm-hmm. 
Reasonable assumption. Yeah. But you wouldn't um, you wouldn't read about this. On the way back, he manages to sail straight into a coral reef. Dead set idiot. Absolute fool. And which is interesting because what it shows you is that Bly must be an amazing navigator because he never had any of these issues. Yeah. First time Ed- Edward Edwards gets over here on the other side of the world, crashes the boat, yeah. the boat starts to sink. And the, the lads are all in the Pandora's box, right? They're locked in there and mm. the ship's sinking. So what's interesting is that Edward Edwards refuses to unlock them. Even when it's sinking, he's like, nah, nah. And it's only at the last minute that the master at arms, who's got the keys, eventually mm. throws the keys down. They manage to get the keys, unlock it, and get out, all the, all the mutineers. But four of them get killed in the process, right? But, like they drown. They drown, yeah. One of the, uh, two of them got hit by like the gangway collapsing. Oh, wow. So, I mean, what are the chances? That's your catchphrase this episode. <laughs> yeah, what are the chances? Well, it's, <laughs> it's just unbelievable, this story. Yeah. So here they are on their way back to be hung, and they're, they're in another shipwreck. Mm. And the ironic thing is Thomas Hayward yep. finds himself in another little boat in yeah. the middle of nowhere. Struck. <laughs> he must be just like, come on, I just survived this ridiculous journey before, yeah. and it's happening all over again. But luckily they eventually get, they get to there, they get to Copang, and um, they do make it back on a very eventful um, trip. So... Crazy, crazy story. So there's only six left, right, because four of them are now dead of the mutineers. A bunch of, I think 30 of the crew also died. Yeah, lots died. Yeah, Yeah. but they're not as relevant to our story, so I'm not going to talk about them as much. They're not legends. So um, they get back, and um, they're going to be charged for for mutiny, which it doesn't matter if you were, like, the person that came up with the idea, if you were the person that did the mutiny. If you didn't help oppose it, then you're considered part of the mutiny. Yeah. So a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys are looking pretty bad. So once they're back in England, the trial begins essentially. And what's interesting is William Bly wasn't actually in London at the time, which I'll talk about later. But um, the prosecution based its case on three fundamental mistakes. Firstly, no one took any actions to thwart the mutiny. Mm-hmm. Secondly. They didn't go into the bounty's launch with Captain Bly, which is harsh because there was no room. Yeah. But, oh well. And thirdly, no one made any effort to return to England after the mutiny. They all went into hiding in Tahiti, which again seems harsh. Yeah. How are they going to get back to England? Jump on a canoe and paddle back? Well, Morrison made a boat on yeah. Tahiti. Him and a couple of others, I can't remember who exactly, but they spent a long time making a really seaworthy vessel. I'm pretty sure Edward Edwards took it back with them yeah the resolution eh? yeah and so i think maybe the admiralty could have looked at that and said you even had the means would have been risky but you know you built a boat and you didn't you kind of get the feeling that they wanted to make an example out of these guys well yeah it's it's better to punish everybody really set that precedent so of the 10 that were on trial seven were pardoned four of them got acquittals coleman norman mcintosh and my favorite michael Byrne, the fiddler yep and then he Hay- couldn't see what all the fuss was about. Seventeen-year-old Haywood and Morrison they got a pardon from the king, and then Musprat got petitioned his release. But poor old uh, Burkett, Millwood, and Allison all got hung. Yeah, and they hung there for two hours in the rain. Yeah. So at least three people got killed well, for the piratical villains for the mutiny on their bounty, but seven got found acquitted essentially. Yeah. 
But the reason that Bly wasn't there, and this is very interesting, is he was on his way back to Tahiti. Guess what he was doing? Grab a couple of plants. Second breadfruit mission. They decided that the breadfruit is so important to get to the West Indies that we're gonna we're gonna send a second a second boat a second mission. Yeah. Who better to lead it? Yeah. Willie we Bly. Know just the guy knows the territory. Willie Bly. So he's like, it's interesting that he said yes, right? Yeah. Would you really want to go on another one? He was uh, a company man, though. He seemed pretty eager to please the Admiralty. So off he went on his second mission. He'd also been promoted to captain. Yeah, he's he actually was, a captain. He was a national hero. Hmm. Especially after being acquitted from in, during the court martial and these other guys being found found guilty, essentially. Yeah. So off he is to to Tahiti. He goes and meets his mate, old uh, Taina. Mm-hmm. Taina, um, the chief of Tahiti. Imagine that catch up. Yeah, there would have been a lot, a lot of information to trade back and forth. And uh, they did the whole thing again. They put a, a cargo full of breadfruits on the boat. And they took them to Jamaica, and this time it went rather smoothly. Not one mutiny. <laughs> no mutinies on this one. No, well, he's learned from his mistakes. But get this, and this is the irony of the whole story. What are the chances? They get to, they get to Jamaica. They get the bread fruit, bread fruit over there, the bread flute, yeah. the bread fruit, and um, the they transplant the it. Turns out the slaves in the West Indies don't even like it. Yeah, gross. So what a waste of time that was. Yeah. But um, anyway, so while Bly was away on a second breadfruit mission, the interesting thing is Peter Hayward meets up with Fletcher's brother, Edward Christian, hmm. because he promised he promised Fletcher that he would. You know, he'd go and kind of clear his name. So he meets up with Edward, who's a lawyer, and he says to him, "Your brother was not that vile wretch, roid of all gratitude, which the world had unkindness to think him." But on the contrary, a most worthy character. So basically he's saying, you know, it wasn't actually Christian's fault. Because at this stage, mm. everything that's been told by Bly and others is that Christian's a bad person, Bly's an angel. You know? Yeah, I think Christian's also been characterized as almost going a bit insane. Yes. Like not that he's just a bad guy, but that he'd lost the plot. And what happens is Hayward brings together some of the other guys that were... Um, part of the mutiny, but got acquitted. And they all meet up, and they all kind of share the stories and share accounts to, to Edward over, over a beer. Mm. And he writes it all down. And then what happens is he releases a book called The Appendix, which is a collection of testimonies, letters, and notes. And um, basically it displays Bly in the worst of lights. Yeah. So Bly's away on a second bread, breadfruit mission. They keep... Yeah. He, left, he left a hero... But when he comes back, his name has been blackened. Like, there's a whole other side to the story that has come out. Yeah. And people have bought into it. Like, the bounty story was high drama and it was selling papers and, you know, people were invested in, in what was happening. It's not like people were ignoring it. It was mainstream news. Yeah, and Simons writes that Christian was a man of honour tormented by a tyrant who was, let's face it, his social inferior. Yeah. So... You know, there's always two sides to the story, and it feels like now Fletcher Christian's side is being told. Hmm. So perhaps it's not as like black and white as everyone thinks. Anyway, obviously Bly comes back, and he's filthy. He's dead set, not happy about you know his reputation being rubbed in the dirt. So he goes and writes another book, um, which is a, essentially an answer to Christian's appendix. 
And by the by the end of this, once this has been released to the public, he's kind of got his reputation back because he kind of like, I guess, corrects some of the things that are going on. And it's the final word. So essentially, the public are back on his side. Mm. Um, he, I think he was viewed as being angry, though. Like, people thought he was a bit of a legend, but also not without his faults. And we're going to kind of like, we're going to give our own opinion on what we think of Bly, because he's, he's a very complex man, isn't he? Mm. His achievements, you can't deny his achievements, but some of the other things that go on. Yeah, questionable. So once he's back from his breadfruit mission, what's interesting is the time is that there's a naval war going on with Napoleon. Yeah. So he kind of gets... Another tiny little man. <laughs> just <laughs> angry tiny men everywhere. Yeah. So... Angry tiny men unleashed. <laughs> just before just before he goes into that, he goes over to Dublin Harbour, which is interesting because Dublin Harbour is really hard to get into for ships. Mm. And he kind of charts the whole thing, making it way easier. Of course he does. Like that, because he's obviously one of the best at doing charting. So they whack him over there. He does that really well, probably saves a lot of ships being sunk. Then he ends up being given his own boat for the Napoleonic Wars. He's he's given the HMS Glatton, which has got 54 guns. Boats are judged on the, the amount of guns they've got, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. He goes down and plays a significant role in the um, the Battle of Copenhagen. Yep. He was actually second to Horatio Nelson. You might have heard of that guy. Yep. Famous naval captain. He was a second. And apparently he acquitted himself well in battle and was commended by Nelson for his actions. But his boat was pretty seriously damaged. So he, he was obviously right, in, right amongst right in it, firing the cannons. Yep. Then he got given, he was made captain of the HMS Irresistible. Woohoo. 74 guns. Wow. Get that down yet. That's almost too many. It's a lot of guns. Imagine firing all those at the same time. Yeah. You wouldn't because they're on different sides, you idiot. Well, <laughs> unless there's boats on either side. Well, you, you know. wouldn't with that attitude. I'm sure it could be done. <clears throat> Interesting thing, though, on the Irresistible, poor relations with his officers continued to dog him. Oh, no way. He's back to his old tricks. Bly got court-martialed by his second lieutenant, and uh, he was reprimanded and told to be more correct. In his language. Yeah, second court-martial, that's not going to look good on your record. So there's a bit of a pattern here. Mm. You can't really ignore that. He, what, what I'm getting is that great technical skills, Yeah. not very good soft skills. No. He's work on his people skills. Yeah. He loves being, he, he loves being uh, in charge, probably yeah. a little bit too much is what I'm getting. And I think the public had that perception of him now too, you know, and I think the Admiralty as well. It's almost like his real character. He'd had enough time, enough experience and moments where you could sort of draw a complete picture of him now. So you'd think you'd think Blyde lived a pretty full life. He'd been on a few adventures around the world. He was involved in a few wars. You'd think he'd be happy to sit at home and, you know, do some knitting or something. Yep. No, not the case. At this stage, Australia was a pretty new country, um, British colony, and there was um, this little state that was kind of developing called New South Wales, and it was a shambles. It was, they used to say it was the, the disgrace of the British Empire yeah. because there was so much corruption going on. Yep. Um, they had a governor there. Was there was, thievery? Yep, there was thievery. Ooh. They had a governor there that was losing control. Um, there was all these kind of... Sheep barons and rum barons and even like the soldiers that they'd sent over there mm-hmm. to try and control the situation were corrupt. So they needed to figure out a plan, the British Empire. Who better to send over as the new governor? Hey. Little William Bly. If you want to stop thieves, he will go after them. 
So he came in hot. He mm-hmm. came in real hot. There was this, there was this guy, John MacArthur, who was a wealthy and influential officer of the New, New South Wales Corps, which was also known as the Rum Corps, because one of the things that was happening is there was trafficking of spirits. These guys were like selling spirits um, and keeping all the money. It wasn't being done in a legal way, so they were making tons of money just controlling controlling alcohol. And um, one of the things that Bly was sent to do was to sort out this corruption. There was also a lot of land grabbing going on. Mm. Um, Lots of land to grab. John MacArthur was kind of like giving it to himself and his mates. They were getting all this amazing farmland around Sydney Harbour and things like that. So Bly was sent in to really sort this out, and he came in hot. He... uh, he he basically came in and said to MacArthur, you know, you can't do a lot of this stuff. We're going to put strict regulations on the distrib- distribution of rum, which is going to stop a, a lot of their money being made. Mm. And essentially led to what's called the the Rum Rebellion. And this is in 1808. Goodness me. Where all the soldiers that were corrupt and involved in the, in the rum industry kind of kicked off and went and put Bly under house arrest. Oh, yeah. Essentially said, you're no longer the governor of us. That sounds fairly mutinous. Yeah, it was. This is the ironic thing is he's come to the other side of the world again yeah. and another mutiny has happened. Yeah, I mean, the common denominator. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel a little bit sorry from here because MacArthur and the crew sound like they're ruthless and corrupt and terrible people. Mm. And the funny thing is when the soldiers came to put him under house arrest, apparently he was hiding under his bed. Yeah. There's a famous photo. Uh, photo. I think there's a famous painting of him under his bed. Yes. That's either true or false. Yeah. Let's just say it's true. Yeah. And anyway, he got removed from governor. He, lo- he lost all his power. He was forced to kind of um, leave Sydney. Because he hid under the bed. <laughs> yeah. It's embarrassing for everyone. Yeah. He was meant to go back to London, but he refused to do that. He kind of went down the road a wee bit in his ship. And waited it out, hoping that he would be able to come back into power. Where did he go? Uh, I think he went down to like... Tassie? Yeah, Tassie. Right. And the interesting thing is, rather than being kind of like the British Empire being saying, hey, you've been wronged, you can have this position back, mm. they sent someone else to be governor. Yeah. I think they were starting to realise that Bly probably isn't the right man to... Yeah. You've got to cut your losses at some point, and controversy followed that guy. But side side fact, John MacArthur, who was a bit of a bit of a corrupt guy, I'm is still that vibe. he's got a like a complicated past, but he's pretty well celebrated in Australia. He mm-hmm. was on their was on their money for a while, and he even has a uh, A League football team named after him, MacArthur, MacArthur FC. So, oh yeah, what did Bly get? Nothing. Well, got a podcast. Oh, you got a podcast? Yeah. yeah. So this where we rip him apart. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, Bly didn't get his governor position back, but he was cleared of any wrongdoing. And he got promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral in 1814. So he ended up coming back to England and spent the rest of his, the rest of his time there. And in 1817, Bly dies of stomach cancer, aged 64. Hmm. And on his um, tombstone it says, Sacred to the memory of William Bly, Vice Admiral of the Blue, the celebrated navigator who first transplanted the breadfruit tree from Tahiti to the West Indies, bravely fought the battles of the country, and died beloved, respected, and lamented on the seventh day of December, eighteen seventeen. Yeah. So that is the story of William Bly. See you, mate. Okay. So, end of last episode, we left um, Fletcher Christian and his men and women. They had anchored off Pitcairn Island. 
the deep waters off Pitcairn Island. And they were fascinated. They were excited by what they could see. It seemed like the perfect spot for them. They knew it was out of distance from Admiralty ships due to it being mischarted on the maps. Um, there was a lot of verdant growth. It was green. It was beautiful. There were a lot of seabirds, so many that apparently they blackened the sky when they would take off. And so they made it onto shore and started to climb up the hills and cliffs and they were looking for any sight, signs of... Um, fresh water. Yeah, or fresh water, uh, food, but also was the island inhabited? That was their primary concern because they'd given up so many potential homes because of previous habitation. They knew that if they settled somewhere um, within range of Tahiti or one of the other islands, a European ship that was coming through would get word of the white men who were nearby. So this was really their only option, a tiny little pinprick in the middle of nowhere. And it is in the middle of nowhere, right? Like yeah. It's miles from anything. Yeah, it's the, what's the statistic? It's the most remote inhabited island on Earth. Sweet. Yeah, perfect spot. Yeah. So one big problem, though, if they're going to make this their home, is they've got a big big ship just hanging out offshore, which yes. if you're sailing past, you know, if you're a, a British, American, Portuguese vessel, you're going to look at that and ask some questions. First of all, what is that island? Because it shouldn't be there. Second of all, whose boat is that? Let's go and have a look. Couldn't you park it around the back? I suppose so. What if they looked around there, though? Heaven forbid they sailed. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that it's not a good idea. But why don't they burn it? Hey, now you're thinking. There was a lot of discussion. Apparently discussion went for days, three, five days. The, the sources vary. But should they burn it or should they not? So some, I think Fletcher Christian included, wanted to salvage the boat. They spent a long time getting everything off, and it was really difficult for them to get the, the pigs and the chickens off in these little boats because they were kicking, squealing. I can't wait to put sound effects in there. This is going to be brilliant. Just drown out my voice. And eventually they built a raft. Fortunately, Fletcher Christian had some experience building a raft on board the Bounty. Yeah, nice. So they had this large flat vessel with which they could transport the animals from the Bounty to the shore. Were there any breadfruit trees left? No, but there were breadfruit trees on Pitcairn. Ah, so, you know, they were delighted to see that little reminder of Bly and what they'd done because Christian wasn't tormented enough. He makes landfall and is immediately confronted with breadfruit. Yeah. Um, and so it's a really difficult thing. There's only one spot on Pitcairn that's really suitable for landing. It's called Bounty Bay. Nobody knows why. It was already called Bounty Bay before it's, they arrived, was I know. It? What are the chances? What are the chances? <laughs> So they, they get all of the animals and the equipment, everything that isn't bolted down, you know, and a lot of stuff that is, and they need the bolts. So they take essentially everything they can. But then, you know, they start to question, well, what do we do? So everything off. Christian says, let's maybe run it aground. Then we can strip all of the planks. Then we'll be able to build huts. That's a good idea. Yeah, not a bad idea. Some of them want to keep the hull intact. So they'll tear the rest of the boat apart but keep the hull so if they do decide or they need to go somewhere else, they can rebuild the boat using the hull as sort of the, yeah. the shell for it. Um, while this debate is raging, they... Can you smell that? No. They smell smoke. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So I'm blending the past with right now to That's... try and draw you into the story. Yeah. They smell smoke, they look out, and they see that the bounty is engulfed in flames. Ooh. And... It wasn't agreed upon. The traditional narrative suggests um, 
that it was Matt Quintal who solved the argument by just slipping aboard secretly. Yeah. Some people say he had two others that helped him. Did he have a deodorant can and a lighter? I don't know how he did it. Okay. Matt Quintal is traditionally blamed for it. <laughs> Long story short. So they're now Pitcairn residents and they look, um, you know, the whole, the peak of Pitcairn's rising a thousand feet into the air, but there are sections of land that they identify as being clearable. They could probably set those aside. They're relatively flat and they could start to build a permanent settlement. Um, but there's a bit of, of a divide between those Pitcairn residents now and some of them treat the Tahitians as equals. And when I say Tahitians, I mean Tahitians and Tubawayans. Yes. Um, Christian, Ned Young, and Adams. So they seem to treat the Tahitian and Tubawayans as equals, but then there are some others who treat them as slaves. And remember, we're talking about 1790, so the idea of imperialism is still all the rage. Yep. It's fine to go around and claim another country of inferior people as your own. Mm. So they weren't enlightened thinkers necessarily, but McCoy, Quintal, Mills, Brown, they're treating these Tahitians and Tubawayans as slaves yeah and these are the mutineers as well they don't have like a yeah much of a moral backbone do they no no and you know they're not well educated they're not coming from high society uh not that that necessarily makes a difference but they're men of scrupulous come down from your ivory tower mate yeah okay sorry (laughs) um so just to recap there's 27 people who arrive on Pitcairn in 1790 we've got nine european men we have six tahitian and tubawine men there are 11 women and one baby girl. So quick maths, there are 15 men and 11 women. Okay. That'll probably be fine. Not sure. Not well, sure about that. It's just statistics. Uh, another thing that's happening is the Pitcairn language is starting to develop. Ooh. So it's sort of a combination of uh, a bunch of English dialects, Tahitian, Tubawayan words thrown in there as well. Uh, some of the words come from apparently the Scottish Isle of Lewis. Um, there's a bit of joy. Yeah, damn Tutin. That's exactly it. Oh, I yeah. didn't know you could speak Pitcairn. Yeah, no, that, yeah. That was incredible. And the Manx mouth. So if you're from the Isle of Man, you are a Manxman. Yeah. And that dialect is well contributed. So things go relatively well, sort of. The first couple of years are kind of peaceful. And a Thursday in October of 1791. The first child is born on Pitcairn. No way. Yeah. Fletcher and Isabella, they have a baby boy and um, they come up with a fantastic name for him. Monday. Monday. No, I think when Christian had been in the West Indies, a common practice there was to name the child after sort of the day that they were born. Ah. And so him and Isabella jumped on that and said, well, look, let's call him Thursday, October Christian. There's only going to be seven names in the the island. Well, there's a lot of months though. So if they stagger it out. Okay. Possibilities are endless. <laughs> Is the month the middle name? Yeah, I don't. I don't actually. I don't know. It's first. They're the given names. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of John Adams' hogs gets <laughs> loose because they've penned in all the animals and they've cleared this land, and one of his hogs gets <laughs> loose. <laughs> I just love that hogs are playing a pretty key role in this story. Yeah, yeah. Um, the hog is unleashed. <laughs> and that's just not a euphemism. A, just a euphemism. runs a mock. Yeah. <laughs> But maybe, the, maybe the hog burnt the boat down. Actually, you know what? That's a yeah neglected aspect. Valid. Yeah. Anyway, it gets loose in Fletcher Christian and Isabella's garden. And remember, Christian originally had a little bit of authority because he was captain of the bounty after they'd taken it from Bly. 
But the bounty doesn't exist anymore. Yes. He, there's no real reason for him any have any sort of authority. Um, and so his authority is being questioned, sort of implicitly, explicitly. And when this hog gets loose, Christian demands that um, John Adams repairs the fence. And Adams just says, bugger off, fix it yourself. And Christian says, well, look, if you're not going to fix it, if any of your hogs get unleashed, if any of your animals roam onto my property, I'm going to shoot them in the face. This sounds like an episode of Neighbours at War. Direct quote, yeah. And after threatening Adams by saying he'll kill his animals, Adams says, yeah, I'll shoot you in the face. Oh, this this is awesome. Tension escalates. Yeah. So the mutineers, they're like, well, that's probably a step too far, mate. So they tie him up. This is Adams. Yes. They tie Adams up. And they figure out what to do. But while they're doing that, paradise sort of starts to unravel. And ultimately, it's Christian. He says, look, just to keep the peace, let's let him loose. Bygones will be bygones and forgive and forget. On Pitcairn, Jack Williams is alone and Jack Williams is horny. (laughs) Fair enough. He wants a wife. Yeah. Jack Williams wants a wife. But there's there's not enough women. No, there's not enough women. We, you know, foreshadowed this. So the mutineers all meet and they want to come up with a solution. And they've got just the thing. Hog. No. <laughs> We've come full circle from the hogs taking animals the on board for pleasure. <laughs> Ironically, they had to get off the ship to use them. No, the more reasonable solution is that they steal one of the wives of the Tahitians and just give her to Williams. Okay, and they don't need to bother telling them. <laughs> doesn't sound that reasonable to me. Because obviously they are inferior. Okay. Don't worry about it. Let's take her. Yep. So the Tahitian men, they're not that happy about this. So they gather together and they conspire to kill the white men. So Fletcher Christian gets wind of this conspiracy. You know, he's an alert guy. He understands how to read, read people. And so he goes, well, I'm not going to stand for this. We need to nip this in the bud. So he takes his musket. It's loaded. And he goes to confront the conspirators. However, the musket's not loaded with a shot. It's just powder. It's just intended for shock and awe. You know, kind of like we saw with Captain Cook way back when, where he just intended to, to frighten, not to kill. Mm. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, this seems like a stupid idea because he fires, bang, nothing happens. And, you know, he doesn't take out a threat. He just inflames the situation even more. Yeah. So the guy who had his wife stolen... Yes. To um, make Jack Williams happy. He's already taken off hiding in the hills. So Ohu, who's the guy that Christian shoots at but doesn't kill, goes off to join him in the hills as well. And Tufaiti, the woman who's given to Williams, she also says, well, bugger this, I'm off as well, and joins the men in the hills. So Williams, unfortunately, has to sleep alone again. Poor bugger. Yeah, and one other woman also goes to join the outlaws. And the situation becomes pretty serious at this point because you've got two armed camps starting to appear on what is a very small island. So one of the Tahitians that the white men trust is Menali, is trusted with tracking the outlaws down. And he does this well. Again, pretty small place, but they are a long way away. They're about as far as they can get from what would become Adamstown, the main settlement that the mutineers have put together. And the white men send Menali with three pies. One of them's poisoned. Oh. Classic skullduggery. Yeah. Fitzsimons writes, One morning late in January of 1792, Menali sets off with the three puddings, with the normal ones in his left hand and the poisoned one firmly in his right hand, with Christian, by one contemporary account, 
promising to reward him handsomely if he succeeded. But if he did not, he was to lose his own life. Ooh, stakes are high. It seems weird. Hey, can you help us out with something? And if you don't succeed, we'll kill you. But that's life when you're living with piratical villains. Mm. So the poison pies arouse a bit of suspicion. Mentally turns up and he's like, oh, hi, everybody. Would anyone like some pie? <laughs> I'll take the one on your right hand, please. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, this one looks better. So there's a little bit of suspicion there. And um, mentally, you know, leads his would-be victim. They're chasing him out. They're saying, you know, get away from here with your poison pies, mate. But he leads him into a narrow pass and attempts to shoot him. Yes. But as is becoming typical in the story, the gun misfires, a melee breaks out, Menelie shouts to, to Faidi to help him, and she does. And together they beat Talalu to death. Ooh. So we've got the first death, first with what, murder. With what? What were they beating him with? Uh, the pies. <laughs> <laughs> they would have taken ages. Yeah, they were, they were intent on doing a good job. So they're standing there with whipped cream and blood covering them. And Menelie gets one final task, and that's, you know, to kill the outlaw, Ohu. So he was the head honcho of the conspirators. And he does this. He tracks him down, again, the other side of the island and shoots him. So he does his job. Fletcher Christian doesn't have to kill him. But we've now had two deaths. Lord of the Flies. It's a little that way, yeah, especially with all the hogs around. Sucks to your ass, ma. Yeah. Poor piggy. Uh, May of, of 1792, Christian, who we've talked about a little bit in terms of his mental health, he's been down in the dumps quite a lot, he's also apparently suffering pretty severe bouts of depression at this point. And this is according to John Adams' later account, but also Isabella, who talks a bit about him as well. And Isabella would often pack him a little picnic lunch when he was feeling really sad. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, take your little yogo and your... Couple of antidepressants. Little snack and yeah. head up. And he had a little um, hideabout. It was a cave which was pretty high up on a cliff. A man cave. Man cave. Pool table. The first ever man cave. And it was really high to access. Someone once said that, you know, if you had a weapon, you could defend it from a whole army because it was inaccessible. And he would just hang out there. And you can see it. If you go on YouTube and look for drone footage of Pitcairn, you can see Christian's cave, which is what it's called here. Still a dartboard on the wall? Yeah, still there. <laughs> yeah. Carp DM. <laughs> Live, laugh, love. No. And that's where he would just hang out when he was feeling really low. He'd just look out at the ocean, eat his little snack, mm. pull himself together. ACDC on. Yeah, go back down. Rocking out to Thunderstruck and he'd feel a bit better. So we moved from May of 1792 all the way through to September of 1793. So relative calm after that little bout of murder. Oh, so they've been there for a year now. Yeah, things are all good. Oh, sweet. Thursday, October, Christian's growing up. We're on Pitcairn and the natives are, you know, being... Tri when I say natives, I mean Tahitians and Tubawaiians. Yes. They're being treated increasingly as second-class citizens on this island. Mm -hmm. um, it's especially McCoy and Quintal that are doing this. Fletcher Christian and Ned Young are apparently a fair bit better, um, treating them almost as if they're equals. Not quite, but close enough. McCoy and Quintal both flog the Tahitian men, Menelie and Tamoa, and Fletcher's not happy about this. Um, one account said that he was appalled by this behaviour, but he can't do anything because his authority is just gone now. He's not the captain of anything. And Menelie and Tamoa, as you would, conspire once again to kill the white men. If you're constantly living under that rule, especially because a couple of the Tahitians and Tubawaiians were relatively high-born, 
Mm-hmm. So they're now, you know, they've lost all of that privilege and are now being treated as, you know, dirt. So with this conspiracy to kill the white men, we're about to enter a period of real carnage and upheaval. Tetahiti, Timoa and Nihau kill in order. They move through the huts in sequence. Jack Williams, dead. Yes. Isaac Martin, dead. dead. Fletcher Christian, no. Alive. Yes. Hanging out in this field. He's just working on his, his crops. And toiling in the sun. Yeah, toiling in the sun. Just a bit of hard yakka for a hard man. Yes. And gets shot in the head. Oh. Yeah. Not dead, though. Mate. No. Then they hack his head to pieces with an axe. Is he dead now? Fletcher Christian, dead. 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 Just oh. like Cook, all three of them gone. Can't believe it. McCoy gets lured to his hut. Like, hey, McCoy, they're stealing from you. So he runs over to try and stop it. Um, one of the natives fires at him. Musket ball screams straight past his head. Uh, he wrestles with Menely, who's fired the shot, gains the upper hand before screaming to one of the other mutineers, Mills, to run, and he takes off himself. So Mills doesn't run, idiot. Mills, dead. Oh. He dies. Yes. Tetahiti kills him. McCoy makes it to Matt Quintal's place, fills him in. He's like, hey, everyone's dying. So the two grab muskets and are on their way. So they want to head out of there and they need to get away. The natives head to Billy Brown's. They find Isaac Martin, not quite as dead as they thought he was. You know how previously I said dead? Yeah. Almost did. dead. Oh, okay. Isaac Martin, thought to be dead. Thought to be dead, yep. Yeah, until they shoot him in the heart. Surely. And they also use a sledgehammer and just sort of pulverize him. <laughs> Isaac Martin? Dead. Confirmed dead. Well, you'd think so. And Brown is also shot and killed. Okay. Dead. So how many mutineers are left? Not many. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do the maths on the run. John Adams takes off. Yes. Musket ball flies past him. It's <laughs> like a scene from the Vietnam War. You yep. don't even need to add sound effects. I'll just do it myself. Okay. And he disappears into the bush for about three hours before heading back to his place, which seems foolhardy. <laughs> he begins to dig around for yams. <laughs> quick, quick, quick yam session. Quick yam well, everyone's session. dying you around know me. what it's like when you need a yam. I bring you a peace offering of a yam. <laughs> yeah, I think he was hungry. He wants to fill up his bag, gets shot in the shoulder. John Adams. Dead? Shot in the shoulder. No, just shot in the shoulder. Okay. Not dead. Um, he died doing what he loved, yeah, digging yams. Yams, old yam diving. Four natives approach him as he's lying there, bag full of yams. So he's happy. If he's <laughs> going to go out, this is the way to do it. A musket's put to his chest. Now, can you imagine living in this age where, you know, you're constantly in danger? The world's a dangerous place, especially if you're going to uncharted places and you're fighting against people who yeah. definitely don't want you to be there. And you're constantly relying on weapons that misfire. Yeah. Musket put to the chest of John Adams, misfire. What are the chances? The gun is primed again. Misfire. Oh, I don't believe it. You wouldn't read about it or hear it on a podcast. That's divine intervention. Yeah. And, you know, where I got this information from, it's hard to say because it was a long time ago. (laughs) Definitely wasn't the weapon maker. Yeah. And some of these names, probably half of them are incorrect. But misfire twice. So one of the uh, natives just looks away for a moment and Adams is like, right, this is my time. Stabs him with a yam. (laughs) Misfires. (laughs) 
No, he takes off running for the jungle and they shout to one another. And in this moment, it turns out that, well, it's revealed to Adams that Ned Young is perhaps behind all of this because one of the men who's been trying to kill Adams says, no, remember, Young told us to keep him alive. This sounds like something out of Scooby-Doo. It is a little that way. Turns out, as Fitzsimon says, that Young is behind all of this. He writes, Young was the local master of murder, telling the natives who to kill, how to do it, and in what sequence. That's disputed, but it's, it's, it's certainly part of the popular narrative that he was behind a lot of this. So the natives go off. They're they're keen to find McCoy and Quintal again because they took off into the jungle. One of them wonders, would they be dumb enough to go looking for yams? (laughs) No, no, they're not looking for yams. Surely they they set a yam trap out there. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave a yam on top of the ground. No, would they be dumb enough to go back to their house? And this, it beggars belief, but they go around to McCoy's house and there they are asleep in their bunks. Oh, come on. Yeah, yam crumbs around their chin. Quintal's wife's in there as well. A musket's fired but misses, it's dark, there's a bit of chaos and the three run for their lives and take off. But this settlement that they have established, it was always a bit of an uneasy, not truce, but kind of alliance between Tahitian's two wines and the European men and they maintained it for a few years. Yes. But the wheels are well and truly <laughs> they off. They have fallen off. It's gone crazy. It's a yam fueled massacre. <laughs> oh, man. So the following morning, Fletcher Christian lies face down in the dirt where he lay. He's clutching something in his hand. Please let it be a yam. He's got a yam in his hand. Oh, what a way to go. It's symbolic of this conflict. And while that's happening, blood staining the earth. Fertilizer? Yeah, it's, you know. Circle of life. Yeah. A little baby's voice rings out clear on the morning air. It's the voice of Mary Christian. So Uh while Isabella runs out, she sees Christian lying, hears the shot, comes out, cradles her husband as he dies, his head mangled in her arms. She essentially goes into labour. And, you know, very soon after, their second child is born without a father. What are the chances? (laughs) So... There's obviously a lot of carnage, personal tragedy that's unfolded here. Yes. But one of the big questions that's arisen out of the the slayings is who gets the wives of the dead men? Yep. And so it prompts further conflict, disagreement, particularly on the part of the women who are being handed out like, you know, lolly bags. Yeah. If that... That's an apt. Surely. Yeah. So a week after the mutineer massacre, after Christian and co have been killed... Menely, as part of this continuing tension, shoots Timur twice, kills him. Ned Young's wife runs to Tetaidian and she's going to tell him what Menely has done. Menely takes off after her um, because he's intending to kill Tetaidi next. So he doesn't want the surprise to be ruined. Uh, a bunch of them aren't having it, though, and when Menely turns up, they outnumber him, they force him to retreat, and he takes off into the hills, the same hills that are occupied by McCoy and Quintal. Oh, So he tracks them down, thinks, right, we're all sort of in a bit of a scrape together here. They strike a bargain. He hands over his musket to prove his loyalty. They let him live, and the three agree to go back to the village to kill the two remaining Tahitian men. Yes. But it's a bit of an uneasy truce, and they're not quite sure as to, you know, how much they can actually trust each other. 
As they get close to the settlement, Menely sees Tetahiti and Nihau and rushes off to attack them, thinking Quintal and McCoy are behind him in support. Yeah. But they've misjudged his actions and think he's run back to join them. They think they've been double-crossed. So they take off back into the bushes again. Menely turns up and says, guys, what happened? He feels betrayed by their lack of support. And he obviously killed the two dudes. Adam's... And Young talk to Tetahiti and Nihau, and a bargain is struck. Yeah. If McCoy and Quintal kill Menelie, they will be allowed back into the village to live. This note is delivered out there to the men explaining the plan uh, because Menelie can't read. So <laughs> this note's passed and they read it. Quintal wastes absolutely no time, basically reads the note and then just shoots Menelie immediately. Oh. McCoy and Quintal decide against returning to the village, though, which is probably a good choice because it's not long afterwards that Tetahiti and Nihau are sent into the bush to kill them. So yeah. it seems like it was a bit of a ruse to get them back in the first place. Yeah. Mentally dead, and then when they come back, we'll kill them too. Um, they find uh, McCoy and Quintal asleep under a tree, and they fire, and it's not a misfire, but they do miss. And in their sort of manic escape to get out of there, McCoy cuts his foot really badly on the root of a tree. And so they can now just track this blood trail. Uh-huh. Tetahiti and Nihau um, don't do it, though. They're a little bit wary of walking into an ambush, as, as you would be. And they return back to the village. Uh, Young isn't convinced that McCoy's quite as poorly, that his foot's as badly hurt as he's making out. Um, or he doesn't really trust the word of... Um, Tetahiti and Nihau here. Regardless, he sends Jenny, which is Isaac Martin's widow. We've talked about her before. And she agrees to go after chatting with Tetahiti and Nihau um, and their wives. So secretly, the women in sort of secret conversations come to their own conclusion. And that is the native women, this includes Tetahiti and Nihau's two shared wives, they want the last two native men to be killed. Yes. Jenny finds Quintal and McCoy. They listen to her and they agree to come down from the hills in the morning and shoot the last two native men. The following morning, Quintal and McCoy, they're not ready to trust um, enough at this point to reveal themselves. So the native women, Young and Adams, have to come up with an alternative plan. So one of the women invites Tetahiti to her bed. So middle of the day, you know, beckons the finger, hey, come over here. So they sleep together. Once he's asleep after the act, which was always the intention, Young's wife will attack him with an axe. (laughs) The go-to weapon. Yeah, the go-to. And the axe blow misses, though. It it hits him in the head, but it doesn't sever sever the head at the neck. It just hits him in the head. He sits up. He's just bleeding profusely from the head. He's confused, as he would be if someone hits you with an axe in the head while you're trying to sleep. And he's... Struck again, and this time his head's almost severed from his body. Tetahiti's dead. Okay. Uh, The woman screams to Martin, Shoot! Young shoots. Nihau is killed at point-blank range. So the two remaining native men have been killed. So we're now left with Young, Martin, Adams, Quintal, McCoy. Five mutineers and a bunch of women. Yeah, and a couple of kids. Okay. Adams finds Quintal and McCoy. Uh, they 
are invited back to the village, but they're hesitant. Um, if they say that if the heads and hands of Tetahiti and Nihau are brought to them as proof, they'll go in. So they yeah. want a little bit of proof of death. And so that's what happens. They're taken out and they buy it. They're like, okay, yep, we'll come in now. When they get to the village, though, things are a little bit different. And that's because of the imbalance in numbers now. The men are vastly outnumbered by the women. And the women begin to talk amongst themselves. They're more free in expressing their opinion. And the tables have turned, too, in terms of the relationships where the women are now completely dominant and they're choosing their own partners. Um, and the men are, you know, sort of taking what's offered at this point. The, the women are dictating what happens in society. It's happened very quickly. So March of 1794, um, the women of Pitcairn, including Isabella, uh, Fletcher Christian's widow, demand that the men build them a boat because they want to go back to Tahiti. And it takes a little while. It's a few months until the boat is ready for launch. Um, but it's not that well built and it begins to take on a fair amount of water. So they abandon that plan. But it does suggest that the women weren't planning to stay there forever. They did okay. want to go back to their, their families and the life that they had known. Fair enough. Um, about a year later, Ned Young becomes aware of a plot. And this is hatched by the women who are now definitely running the show. And their plan is to kill the remaining men. All of them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they want to take complete control and eventually get back to yeah. where, they, where they came from. The women are rounded up and they're questioned, you know, and they admit to it under... Um, they've got muskets pointed at them, so yeah. they admit to it under duress. But the men can't really do anything except forgive them. You know, what are you, you going to do when you're that? Them? Yeah, and you're that outnumbered. So they they hope that they've addressed the issue, but it's not going to go any further. Yeah, Young's pretty concerned though, uh, so he takes two loaded muskets, heads off into the bush, which is what everybody does as soon as things yeah. get a bit dicey, and he tells the men. Um, where the muskets are because he hides them out there. And he says, look, if things ever get really rough, you can go out, here are some muskets if we're ever attacked. December of 1795, there's a ship sighted on the horizon. And there would have been mixed emotions when this happened. You know, the mutineers still living in fear of you know, yes. punishment, justice for what they had done. But it disappears over the horizon so they can go back to their daily life. But it sends, again, a little shockwave through the community Four years later, Matt Quintle's wife, she's out collecting bird eggs. She slips on a clifftop and dies. Ooh. But it's the first death in quite a while. It's been peaceful. You know? Yeah, after that, because there was quite a spike in murders. Yes. And then it declined. Quintle decides he wants um, Young or Adam's wife. You know, his fell over. He wants another one. If they don't decide between them which one of them is going to surrender their wife, he'll kill them. Isn't so there enough woman? That famous, yeah, but he wants one of theirs. Oh, okay. Yeah, I want, want that one. No issue there. Yeah. Yeah, I want that one. Yeah. So that famous um, mutineer diplomacy rears its head again. Yeah. Um, he threatens them, and, you know, I think the easiest way out for them is just to kill him. Okay, that's a good idea. So Young and Adams just murder Matt Quintal, and yeah. having done that, they've got a bit of a bond between them, and that leaves old Billy McCoy... Out in the cold on his own a little bit. Okay. You know, two's company. Yeah. Three's a crowd. Billy McCoy, he's he's not part of the crew. And on Christmas Eve of 1799, McCoy apparently ties a heavy rock 
around his neck and just jumps into the ocean. Is he looking for power? I think so. Everyone gets sick of yams eventually. <laughs> Did he find any? Power? Yeah. Um, it's unclear. We well, didn't come up to tell the story, did he? No. He was greedy, kept it all for himself, and he died of seafood poisoning. He sleeps with the fishes. Yeah. Um, so Christmas Day, Ned Young has a severe asthma attack, dies. <laughs> yeah, so it's Christmas Eve where McCoy jumps into the ocean looking for seafood, and then Ned Young has an asthma attack and dies Christmas Day. So it's 12 years now since leaving England, nine since they burned the bounty, whoever it was that burned it. We've got one man surviving alone on Pitcairn from the original arrivals. It's like a massive game of Cluedo. Yeah. John Adams is still going. And that's just the way that it goes for the next decade. And the island sort of calms down at that point. Um, Everyone ends up referring to Adams as father. Well, I guess when you're the only... Male. Yeah, adult male. Adult. Yeah. Yeah, so he seems to lead that community. And despite the fact that he's got a pretty uh, dodgy past, he becomes devoutly religious. Mm. He apparently has this religious experience where he's visited by an angel and all of his past, his demons, sort of pick at him until he feels that the only thing he can do is turn his life around and live a good Christian life. Sounds like an island version of Gloria Vale. Yeah. He's got a Bible. Yes. But he can't read very well. Ah, so, so he just freestyles. Yeah, it? basically. Okay. He, he turns this community built on mutiny, kidnapping, murder. He turns it into this little Christian enclave built off the freestyle teachings of a man with a Bible who can't really read and is just trying to repent for a life of absolute sordid crime. Amazing. Yeah. So... Like I said, it's a decade of calm, really, and it continues on until um, February the 6th, 1808. An American sealer, the Topaz, is passing by and it spots a Tahitian-style canoe paddling out to greet them. And it's crewed by Tahitians, but they speak with English accents, which would absolutely throw you if you were in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> yeah. on an, uh, facing an island that shouldn't be there. So um, Captain Folger, he's from Boston goes ashore and he greets this white-haired man, John Adams, who's out of shape, balding, and he's just desperate to know what's been happening in the modern world. He's been cut off, has no idea of what's going on. The Napoleonic Wars, you know, there's so much to know. And that, you know, at least to this point, I think we'll do a bit of a follow-up and tidy up some of these ends, but that is largely the end of the story. So Adams... Alone is the only man who arrived on Pitcairn. He's got this little devoted flock of um, converted Christians. There's obviously still Fletcher's kids Thursday yeah. yep. and Mary. Yeah. Isabella. Yep. And, yeah, so the community thrived, really. And a few different people visit over the years, um, and they remark on just how idyllic the community is. It's shut off from the rest of the world completely. But rather than being this barbaric place... It seems like it runs like clockwork. Everyone that visits is greeted with smiles and a calm chat with John Adams, who's this gentle and you know really welcoming, curious host. And, yeah, the women speak highly of him. Like I said, he's referred to as father, and it's viewed by many as being paradise on earth. They've somehow managed to craft this slice of paradise. But we know... 
that it was built off the back of deception. Yeah, and just absolute carnage. murder. Yeah, and yams. <laughs> Yam murders. Yeah. Okay, so that's the story of William Bly and the mutiny on the bounty. We've kind of covered it from all angles. We've looked at a bit of Bly's life post the mutiny. We've looked at. Yeah, we drifted away from Bly a little at the end there, but. What happened on Pitcairn? Uh, amazing story and it's been like an absolute pleasure to learn about it yeah and yeah we'll, we'll do a follow up episode and we'll have a chat about a few of the loose ends I think um, but the stuff that happened on Pekan is just unbelievable literally unbelievable yeah what are the chances and Bly lives an incredible life as well his journey in the launch should not be forgotten because that's one of the defining moments of the story of naval history of yeah it's just Incredible. So that wraps up the uh, the first character in Pacific Legends. Unleashed. Unleashed.